This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day today and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, actor and columnist Rick Samada goes peak Harry Styles and steps out in a skirt to see if liberating your legs is really having a moment for men. Journalist Serene Kale explores the growing trend and heartbreak of pet custody battles. And finally, former bad boy of tennis and Grand Slam winner John McEnroe sits down with writer Tim Lewis to reflect on how he went from villain to hero. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before we jump in, a quick warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. First up, yes, A man can rock a skirt on the catwalk or the red carpet, but what if your natural habitat is the greasy spoon or street market? Here, actor and columnist Rick Samada decides it's time to slip into that slitted maxi and find out whether the world of non-celebrities is ready for a bit of leg. This piece is read by Rick Samada. I love clothes, including those defined as feminine. I rarely wear such things outside because who's got the guts? This could be the time. Gendered fashion is reportedly dead. After wearing lounge pants for two years, men want to liberate their legs. To test the cultural temperature, I've borrowed a long black skirt from my friend Rowena and I'm wearing it around South London to see if anyone cares. They do. Men in skirts may be having a moment, but my experience is excruciating. Passers-by stare at me with narrowed eyes, like I'm a piece of long division. It looks so easy on magazine covers. Harry Styles, Pete Davidson and NBA star Russell Westbrook have burned the menswear rulebook, while celebrities such as Kid Coody, Lewis Hamilton and Oscar Isaac are also fated as straight male skirt kings. Tom Brown, Rafe Simons, Yoji Yamamoto and Comme des Garçons all pushed the look in recent collections. But catwalks and red carpets are one thing. Packham Rye in a slitted maxi is quite another. I may as well be wearing a colander for a crown. The skirt itself is great. 
free, airy and elegant. Is it a man's skirt? asks a woman sitting outside a shop. Unisex, I reply, telling a white lie. Looks good, she decides. It's hard to know what people think just from their expression. There's another complication too. In most of the world, much of which is hot, men wearing airy garments over their legs is normal. Religious garments often have a dress-like form. It's possible people are trying to work out if I'm wearing a jalabia or juba, even a sarong. I could be a funky cleric. I'm basically wearing a skirt with a get-out clause. It's time to go bold. I return the linen number to Rowena, and we go shopping. In a charity shop, I'm drawn to a Lipsy animal print number. That's a wag Prosecco dress, demures Rowena, who doesn't believe in mincing words. And not your pattern. I pick up a paisley midi in white and coral. Sweet, sort of 90s and fun. I buy it, but not everyone is sold. Maybe we do this, my friend says at home, whipping out some pins and taking it up 25 centimetres. She ties my t-shirt into a midriff-bearing crop top. Now that's a look. I could wear this in the vicinity of an art school and blend right in. But where would the fun be in that? I take a trip to East London to an old-school fruit and veg market. The traders stare, but no one tells me to put my plums away. Likewise in a crowded greasy spoon. Some of the older clientele do look a little offended, which doesn't feel good. I don't want to upset anyone. But I'm only wearing a skirt. Men in shorts run topless wherever they like and no one bats an eyelid. On public transport, no one says anything. Then again, you could wear a pillowcase like a chef's toque and talk to a blancmange on a bus and no one would notice. In the street, there are more interactions. An elderly Chinese woman totters over to tell me I look good. I ask if the skirt is too short. No, nice, she says. What a baller. For what it's worth, another elderly woman shouts, What the fuck is that? in my direction. Young people are generally on board. Slay, smiles a teenage girl shyly. There's a fair bit of work it to balance out the disgust. Schoolboys are the worst, bless their suffering hearts, but most are simply curious. I think gender roles are prisons, and we should all wear what we want, and I doubt I'm alone. I went to drama school, and would say roughly 100% of the boys were there so they could wear dresses. As a side note, I am conflating two different garments here. Is there more of a cultural template for man in a dress, as opposed to a skirt? The aesthetic unity of dresses has always appealed to me more than skirts. In any case, we yearn for the forbidden. There could be another reason for the confused faces. It's unseasonably cold and raining. I'm not feeling pleasant airiness. The wind is whipping between my legs. Perhaps I just look chilly. Other steep learning curves include knowing how to sit on public transport, place bag on knees, not between, thigh modesty, and where in hell's teeth to put my things. It's nothing if not a great lesson in empathy. Everyone should experience the exposure, scrutiny, and restricted movement that skirt wearers endure. While weather is the most hostile force I encounter, I wouldn't say men in skirts are normalised. What the fuck is that? Is dehumanising language. 
Not great for the old self-esteem. At first I shrink. Then I stand taller. Stare at me. And I'll stare right back. But defiance is tiring. And it saddens me that a man can't wear a lovely piece of clothing without arming himself in this combative stance. I don't have the energy for that every day. I can't say what I'll be wearing tomorrow. But I do know this. It'll have goddamn pockets on it. That was Harry Styles Can Get Away With Wearing A Skirt But Can I? Written and read by Rick Samada. Next. A trend that started in celebrity circles, taking your partner to court over who gets the family dog, is on the up. Throw in the increase of pet ownership over the course of the pandemic and the onset of no-fault divorces this year and pet custody cases are expected to surge. Here, Shireen Kale explores the heartbreak and anguish that comes with fighting over the furry ones you love. Read by Brenda Iyala. All Emma wants is to see her baby. Not even half the time, or at weekends, or in the holidays. The odd walk in the park would do, or a day at the beach. Emma misses her. She thinks about her all the time. She wonders if Luna has forgotten about her, and if she has, whether that's for the best. The thought of Luna thinking that Emma abandoned her breaks her heart. The last time she saw Luna was in mid-2021. Emma, who is in her 30s and works in social care in the southwest of England, travelled to where her ex lives to see her. She was so happy and excited to see me, Emma says. It was lovely, but he wouldn't let me see her by myself. They spent an hour together, and as they were saying goodbye, Emma told Luna how much she loved her. Afterwards, Emma sat in the car and cried. Emma never planned to go to court. It was her ex who first suggested speaking to a solicitor. It was during one of their fraught phone calls, Emma begging to see Luna, her ex telling her that it was in Luna's best interests for them to part ways and move on. His voice was so cold. Emma barely recognised her boyfriend of six years. So now, the lawyers are involved. I never thought we'd get to the point of having to go to court, Emma says. She estimates that she has spent more than £7,000 on legal fees. She's terrified that things might not go her way. One of my biggest fears with the court, says Emma, is that the judge can order us to sell Luna if they can't see any other resolution. The judge has this power because Luna is a golden retriever and Emma and her ex bought her together, meaning that if they sold her, both would receive an equal return on their shared property. But Emma won't let it come to that. I'd rather Luna be with him than sold to someone we don't know, she says. I know that with him she is loved and looked after, and that is the most important thing. Emma is one of a growing number of people going to court to negotiate custody arrangements not of children, but of pets. It's a trend that started in celebrity circles. TV presenter Ant McPartlin and makeup artist Lisa Armstrong continue to share custody of Labrador Hurley after their divorce, while selling Sunset's Mary Fitzgerald and Jason Oppenheim, share dogs Nico and Zelda, even throwing the animals a joint birthday party in season four of the Netflix reality show. This trend has percolated out to the general public. There's been a constant increase in inquiries, says Geeta Dougal, 
of law firm Richard Nelson LLP. Dougal has handled 20 pet custody cases since 2020. Probably about 30% of my divorce cases will involve a dispute about pets, says leading family and divorce lawyer Vanessa Lloyd-Platt. With the introduction of no-fault divorce in April 2022, cases are predicted to surge. Lloyd Platt has 30 clients ready to issue proceedings against their partners when the law changes. In the US, a 2014 survey from the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers found that 27% of respondents had seen an increase in pet custody disputes in the previous five years. When Boston lawyer Jeremy Cohen opened his practice in 2016, pet custody was barely on his radar. Now, it's 50% of the caseload and the firm has 25 cases in court. We're getting three or four calls a day about pet custody issues, he says. Accordingly, he's rebranded. His firm is now called Boston Dog Lawyers. The COVID-19 pandemic has been a divorce lawyer's blessing, Lloyd Platt says crisply. During the pandemic, her firm would often receive calls from clients sitting in their cars because it was the only place they could go to speak privately. Clients were sometimes more anxious about what would become of their pets than their children. They have no problem organising who will live with the children, she says. But when it comes to the pets, they insist they want the dog. It's bizarre. In the UK, pets are considered chattels, meaning they effectively have the same status as a fridge freezer or dishwasher, Lloyd Platt says. She advises couples to sign a pet nup before acquiring a pet to determine what would happen in the event of a split. For those who don't have such forethought, matters are dealt with in the divorce courts if a couple are married or in the small claims court if they are not. Judges award the animal to whoever can prove ownership of it. If you didn't pay for it, Lloyd Platt says, you don't have a leg to stand on. If one party paid for the animal but another party paid for all of its costs, judges may adjudicate on whether the pet is best placed after hearing testimony from animal experts. If the couple paid for the animal jointly, judges may insist one party buys out the other party, they split custody of the animal or, in extreme circumstances, sell the animal and split the proceeds. Most US states follow a similar model. Because pets are viewed in most jurisdictions, with the recent exceptions of Spain and France, as property, not sentient beings, disputes over pet custody may not always be resolved in the best interests of the animal. When he came to me, he was infested with fleas, Jane says. He had worms and emphysema because people used to smoke near him. He was also burned because someone had dropped boiling water on him. Jane is referring to her 10-year-old Labrador, Clyde, who originally belonged to a relative. When they moved away, she ended up looking after Clyde for four years. I spent thousands rehabilitating him, she says. But in March 2016, Jane's relative requested Clyde back. It was a slap in the face, she says. Last year, the relative served her with court papers. For Jane, sending Clyde back was an impossibility. By now, she was living on a different continent. It would be the end of Clyde's life, she says. I would be sentencing this dog to death because he's old. He has a heart condition. Jane spent £13,650 fighting her relative in court. I was so stressed, she says. I lost a significant amount of hair. 
Her concern was that the court would award the animal to her relative under property laws, despite the fact that her lawyers highlighted Clyde's poor condition when he arrived with her. But the court ultimately ruled in Jane's favour, not because it was in the dog's best interest to stay with her, but because her relative did not reclaim their property within a reasonable period of time. Jane is relieved that Clyde will see out the rest of his days by her side, but feels passionately that the law needs to change. A dog is not property, she says. Property is a table and chairs. We need to consider where the dog is best placed. Her view is shared by many animal rights advocates who believe the law needs to consider welfare issues as much as legal ownership. Custody absolutely has to be based on what is in the best interests of the pet, says Dr Samantha Gaines of the RSPCA. Many agree. A third of Americans believe animals deserve the same rights as people, according to a 2015 Gallup poll. But not all welfare issues are as clear-cut as a dog with fleas. Animal behaviour can be difficult to interpret and individuals can sincerely believe they are acting in the best interests of the pet, when in fact, they're causing significant harm. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I'm not to blame, says Sham Ganglani, a 46-year-old product manager from Rhode Island. I am just as much to blame as my ex-wife. We were in this together and we didn't recognise what was happening. It was hard to see what was best for the dogs. In 2016, Ganglani and his wife separated, divorcing two years later. At the time, they had two dogs, a mutt called Atticus and a German shepherd called Radley. It seemed horrible to separate them, he says, because they were great friends. So, as part of their divorce agreement, they decided to share both dogs, shuttling them between their houses every week. Over time, it didn't work out for Radley, Ganglani says. It disrupted the routine for him. There were warning signs. Radley became extremely protective and Ganglani was so worried he hired a dog trainer for advice. In November 2019, Radley bit a child at Ganglani's ex-wife's house. Ten days later, Radley bit Ganglani's girlfriend's son who needed 17 stitches. A horrified Ganglani revoked his rights to Radley and his ex-wife agreed to take him full-time. But they continued to share Atticus and in May 2020, Ganglani discovered a large gash on Atticus's ear. His ex-wife admitted that Radley had attacked Atticus. I was done, Ganglani says. I was not going to send Atticus back into a situation that was dangerous. His ex-wife took him to the family court, holding him in contempt of their divorce agreement. But before the case could be tried, Radley bit an 18-year-old dog groomer. Afterwards, Ganglani's ex-wife agreed to drop the case. It haunts me, Ganglani says. I feel responsible for what happened. We put Radley in a situation where he was not set up for success. Given a do-over, Ganglani would not have split custody of the dogs. People should figure out who will take the dog and make a clean break, he says. Gaines urges couples considering shared custody to think carefully. On balance, dogs are better able to cope than cats, Gaines says. But not all dogs can be regularly moved. Cats are highly sensitive to changes in their environments and do not travel well. When sharing custody, it's important that both owners are consistent in how they treat the animals. Ganglani believes that the discrepancy between his and his ex-wife's approach is, in part, what unsettled Radley. He was confused, he says. With me, things were a certain way, and with her, it was different. 
If owners do proceed with shared custody, they should watch for stress indicators in their animals. For cats, this may be increased spraying, urinary tract infections, or hiding. For dogs, owners should assess whether the animal appears more frightened than usual and frequently presents with a lowered body posture and tail between their legs. Shared custody arrangements absolutely have the potential to go very wrong, Gaines warns. Of course, not all shared custody agreements will traumatise the animals involved, but they can prove distressing for their owners. I can feel myself getting anxious and short of breath, Rob says. This sense of panic comes on. Rob is describing how it feels when he meets up with his ex to hand over their shared dog. They broke up in August 2021 after a long relationship, against Rob's wishes, but agreed to shared custody, swapping the dog between them every few weeks. Seeing his ex so regularly is excruciating. We were together for a long time, Rob says. You can't just turn these feelings off. But I have to put my emotions aside because I love that dog to bits. Every handover, Rob cries. Every single time. I want to stay strong and put a brave face on, he says. But my ex is in front of me and he's taking my baby. To add salt to the wound... Rob's ex has a new boyfriend and they often post pictures online with the dog. When I see the dog with them, Rob says, it feels as if they're trying to replace me. Rob knows that seeing his ex so regularly is stopping him moving on. He has considered giving up the dog. He knows his ex loves him as much as he does and the dog would be well looked after. I may have to make that decision further down the line, he says. I'm not ruling it out. For my sanity... Maybe I do just have to let it all go and start again from scratch. But that's a lot of your life to be letting go, he sobs. Your partner that you had for nine years and the dog you had for over half that time. What makes someone like Rob so determined to maintain custody of a pet, even at the expense of his emotional well-being? People say that a dog isn't a child, Rob says. But when you don't have a child, you don't have anything else to compare it to. I do treat him like a child. Emma does not plan to have children. Some people can't fully understand, she says of Luna, but the love I have for her is like the love a mother would have for a child. I know she's not a child in the eyes of the law, but that's the best way I can explain it. In this, she is not alone. The total fertility rate has been declining every year since 2012, says Professor Shireen Kanji of Brunel University. Most demographers are really worried about falling fertility and what this means for the functioning of ageing societies and for the economy. It's not hard to see why. Across the UK, house prices have quadrupled since 1990 while childcare costs run to hundreds of pounds a week. There is a clear link between housing and children, Kanji says. But this shift is about more than just economic change. Animals have come to take more of a role in our emotional lives, says John Bradshaw, author of The Animals Among Us. He points out that Britons have always loved animals, but that this affection has intensified as a new cohort of people embraced pet ownership during lockdown. There are an extra 3.2 million pets in the UK, he says, and people are getting pets for the first time who haven't experienced that love of forming a relationship with an animal before. But the issue is that pets are not children. Pets are often seen as members of the family, Gaines says. And the same way we'd look at sharing custody of children, you'd share an animal. 
But the difference is that you can't explain to an animal why you're sharing custody. Bradshaw agrees. A child's brain works in a different way from a cat or a dog's, he says. It needs to be considered from that animal's perspective, not just as a cat or dog, as that cat or dog. Animals are not humans, even if we sometimes feel they are, and pet custody battles are too often about the well-being of owners rather than their beloved companions. Emma's anguish will end one way or another this month when she has her final court hearing. Until then, she waits and tries not to imagine a future in which she will never feel Luna's insistent, nuzzling embrace. I am terrified, she says, but I've tried not to think too much about losing. I would struggle to get through the day. I don't want to think about life without Luna. It's too difficult. That was, I want to stay strong, but my ex is taking my baby. What happens to pets when relationships break down? By Shirin Kale. Read by Brenda Iyala. We'll be back after this short break. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Faker Others here. This summer, the UK will play host to the Women's Euro Championship. I would say it's going to be a seminal moment, but I have promised my producers that that kind of chat is not going to be allowed on our brand new podcast, The Guardian's Women's Football Weekly. Throughout July, myself, Susie Rack and a bunch of women's football experts will be on hand three times a week to provide instant reaction and analysis from the tournament. We'll be launching with a preview episode on Monday the 4th of July, so make sure to search, subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is supported by Visa. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, former Grand Slam champion and erstwhile self-saboteur, John McEnroe, has always had an examined life. From breaking through as an unseeded teenager in 1977 to today, where he is embraced as a beloved commentator and now the subject of his latest documentary, McEnroe. But there's a sense McEnroe, the man, wants to move on from the furious kid and after 40 years, he thinks he's finally landing on some answers on how to control himself better. Here he sits down with journalist Tim Lewis to discuss the pain of defeat, the joy of victory and finally turning around his reputation. Read by Christopher Ragland. In March 2020, just before the pandemic locked the world down, John McEnroe faced Michael Chang in an exhibition tennis match at Indian Wells in California. 
As a contest, it was next to meaningless. It was a chance for a nostalgic crowd to squint and remember these players in their heyday, almost 40 years in the rearview. At some point, McEnroe, not contractually obliged but almost, would surely kick off at the umpire or a hapless line judge. Maybe he'd even bust out, You cannot be serious! Everyone would go home happy. No one would remember Chang won the match. No one, that is, except McEnroe. Michael Chang is a great champion in his own way. He says, more than two years on, of the former French Open winner, 13 years his junior. But he's lost something with his body. He used to be a great runner. He wasn't running. And long story short, I lose to him? I'm like, ugh, that's it. I can't even beat him. The anguish is palpable. I remember I called my agent. Don't you ever put me in another match the rest of my life. McEnroe goes on. His Queens, New York, not West London, twang more pinched, the volume escalating. Getting old sucks is the bottom line. I said to my wife, listen, this is the first time in my life where I could say I'm as good or better guitar player now than a tennis player. If people ask me what I do for a living, I'm going to say I'm a guitar player. McEnroe's wife of the past 25 years is Patti Smith. She's not only a musician of some renown, but has more experience than anyone at diffusing his outbursts. McEnroe, who seems to be running out of steam now, huffs, and she said, No, I'm not letting you do that. So, I gotta keep pushing the tennis a little more, I guess. It's not a newsflash that John McEnroe hates losing. But there is much about our conversation today that does surprise me. And this is, well, unexpected. Few sporting lives, maybe only Muhammad Ali's, have been as chronicled as McEnroe's. There have been multiple documentaries and dramatizations of his life. Two autobiographies, Serious, then But Seriously, and many other books. He's inspired pop and punk songs, as well as Ian McKellen's portrayal of a megalomaniacal Coriolanus for the RSC, and Tom Hulse's petulant Mozart in the 1984 film Amadeus. You would have to go deep, deep off the grid to find someone who doesn't have a familiarity with that fourth-set tiebreak against Bjorn Borg at Wimbledon in 1980. Famously, even Nelson Mandela convinced his prison guards at Robben Island to let him listen to that match on the BBC World Service. So, McEnroe has had an examined life. Right from when he broke through as an unseated teenager and made the semifinals at Wimbledon in 1977 to today, where he continues to set the standard for incisive, no-fluffing sports commentary. But now 63, there's a sense McEnroe wants to move on from being stuck forever as that furious kid with the wooden racket and the wild hair, scarcely tamed by the red, toweling headband. McEnroe estimates, semi-seriously, that he has seen 37 psychiatrists and psychologists over the years, some court-mandated, after the acrimonious breakup of his first marriage, some voluntary, to figure out if he can control his anger better and stop sabotaging himself. And he thinks he's finally landing on some answers. That process is there in a new feature-length documentary, McEnroe, which calls itself definitive, 
and has the blessing of its subject. Of course, there's a lot of tennis in the film, which is directed by British filmmaker Barney Douglas, but it ends up being more a rumination on the pursuit of perfection and what that drive ultimately wreaks on you, your two wives, and six children. An introspective McEnroe does most of the talking, but there are candid interjections from, among others, Smith, two of McEnroe's older kids, Borg, Keith Richards, and the pretender's Chrissy Hind, who recalls hanging out with McEnroe in the 1980s, when he was simultaneously the best tennis player of all time and also a pothead. Mainly, the documentary reminds you why there are countless films about McEnroe and not so many about, say, Tim Henman or Pete Sampras. It's not every athlete's story that takes in Studio 54, Andy Warhol, and the Rolling Stones. But it's also more personal and perhaps intimate than previous accounts. It's not that people care about what I'm doing now, says McEnroe on a video call from New York. That I've got kids, or I'm happily married, my second marriage. But I last played at Wimbledon 30 years ago, so who the hell still cares about what I did 40 years ago? So I was like, Jesus Christ, can we move on? Watching McEnroe the film, it can be hard to work out if McEnroe the man loves tennis. He's not sure himself. I'd say on a certain level, I love tennis, he replies. I mean, it's a very difficult thing to be out there on your own when you're laying an egg. Like, that's a bad feeling. You're exposed and, you know, everything you put into it. My true understanding of whether I love tennis would be, if I love tennis, I would go out there and play tennis whether I got paid for it or not. At this point in my life, I have not gotten to that point where I haven't been paid for it, so I don't know the answer. I'd like to tell you yes, but I hope that there's never a time when I have to answer that question. As he pops up on the Zoom, you're reminded how well McEnroe looks. His hair is fully silver these days, and he wears a skinny black denim jacket, white t-shirt with a loopy necklace. It's not an aesthetic that every sexagenarian could pull off, but he is pretty much the build and weight he was when he was playing. He's a fidgeter, McEnroe, and his answers tend to jump around too. I think I'll warm him up with an opener about New York, and ten minutes later he's covered the first 18 years of his life, why the punks on King's Road supported him, and how it was his mission to save tennis from the bunch of old farts who ran it in the 1970s and 80s. Not that much has changed, he concludes sadly. Honestly, I think I failed pretty miserably in that. In the film, his wife Smith says he might be on the spectrum. Does McEnroe agree? I'm not exactly sure, he says, giving the matter serious thought. She was saying that in a little bit of jest, but <laughs> she knows me better than anyone. Um... I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, as long as you control it in the right way. What I've always thought about myself is that I'm more like the normal guy than Bjorn is, he goes on. Bjorn's the freak that could go out there and not change his expression for four hours. I'm the normal guy that gets frustrated on the court and expresses himself. So, I feel like, I don't want to say every man, but I live in the city, 
I'm going to go to the Rangers ice hockey game tonight. So, I don't know exactly what her definition was of spectrum, but I want to take it as a positive, not a negative. McEnroe has identified that the great, recurring stumbling block of his life, or at least his career, is that the pain of defeat has always stung more than the joy of victory. This is seen most obviously in the 1984 season, where he won 82 matches and lost just three. But what does McEnroe linger on from that year? That he was two sets up against Yvonne Lendl in the French Open final and threw it away after losing his rag at the crackling headset of a courtside cameraman. That's the part that was so hard about being an athlete, at least for me, he says, is you always remember your losses. Even then, McEnroe wondered why success didn't make him happier. You're never satisfied, he says. I remember thinking when I came to Wimbledon, if I ever win this, I am never coming back to this goddamn tournament. But then I won it in 1981, and all of a sudden I felt like I was going to fly over the stadium. It was unreal. Then I felt this incredible sense of relief because I'd blown the one the year before. You go through a lot of different emotions oftentimes during a match. You are loving something, then hating it. Maybe that's the way it is with life. You just have to minimize those moments where you think it's horrible and maximize the moments where you think it's incredible. That's what I've been on a quest for the last 40 years. While he always looked on the verge of boiling over, the closest McEnroe came to an actual meltdown was 1992, when he was 33. He hadn't won a Grand Slam singles title for seven years. Since the U.S. Open in 1984, and it was becoming increasingly clear, he never would again. There was a rift with his father, John McEnroe Sr., who had guided his career since he was a junior player, but who felt stabbed in the back when McEnroe told him he might benefit from a proper coach to arrest his decline. He wasn't helped by what he calls the performance-detracting drugs. Mostly marijuana, but also cocaine. As much as he was dismayed by the end of his career, though, it was the implosion of his marriage that nearly derailed McEnroe. He met the actor Tatum O'Neill in 1984 at a party in the Hollywood Hills. O'Neill was already an Oscar winner for Paper Moon in 1973 at the age of 10. McEnroe believed he had finally found someone who could understand and help him navigate the pressures of relentless scrutiny. Instead, their union exposed both of them to new, unprecedented levels of interest. At their wedding in 1986, paparazzi circled above in helicopters. That same year, when McEnroe was 27 and O'Neill 22, the first of their three children was born. No other athlete in any sport has ever had to go through what I have to, McEnroe bemoaned at the time with some justification. I remember thinking, I'm going to fly under the radar with my ex-wife, recalls McEnroe now. Like, who the hell are you kidding? The level of attention exploded. There was way more than I'd ever gotten with any person or anything. Oh my god. So, then you dig in your heels. Meanwhile, McEnroe's ego was taking a battering as he became an also-ran at the major tournaments. He took a six-month sabbatical from tennis in 1986, but when he returned, he lagged even further behind his younger rivals. 
They always say you learn more from losing than you do with winning, notes McEnroe with a wry laugh. Well, the last six or so years of my career would be living testament to that. <laughs> it was like torture. I tried a lot of different things to get stronger, fitter. Uh, this, that, trainers, traveling with the coach at the end. Things that I didn't believe in, in a way. But I was willing to try anything and everything to figure out how to become a better person, father, husband. In 1992, O'Neill decided she wanted to split. I was falling apart in a way, says McEnroe. I don't think I ever got to that falling apart stage, but I was having a hard time functioning. For that first six months, it was like, just get the kids in school or make sure that I'm there for them. But at one point, someone told me, they're seeing you with tears and crying and that's not good for your kids. So, I had to get my shit together. The divorce was confirmed in 1994, and in 1998, McEnroe was granted sole custody of the children because of O'Neill's heroin addiction. The ultimate nightmare to me would be what we just watched with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, says McEnroe. This public trial? <sighs> Thank God that didn't happen. That would be beyond belief. To each his own. I'm not here to pass judgment, but I'm like, wow, I'm glad I missed that. McEnroe still has a temper, and apparently it's scary when he loses it. But that happens less and less these days. He credits the mellowing to Smith, whom he met on Christmas Day, 1993. McEnroe was bruised and not looking for a relationship, or at least certainly not one, he admits honestly, with a woman who was older than him and already had a child. But for once... The instinct to self-destruct didn't kick in. It became apparent pretty quickly to me. Are you going to show some balls here and realize that someone's giving you a second chance for some reason? He says. And I'm proud to say I made the right call at that time. I about-faced and was like, Okay, I'm going to be with this one person and, God damn it, I'm going to make this one work. I'm going to try harder than I did even the first time. Someone's put this woman in front of me. Don't blow this. And, obviously, I didn't blow it. McEnroe also made some pretty shrewd calls with his post-athletic career. He actually doesn't commentate on tennis very much, only about eight weeks a year at the major tournaments. The rest of the time, he plays guitar. His early mentors included Eric Clapton and Eddie Van Halen, and he toured for years with his rock band, The Johnny Smith Band. He also pursues his interest in art and checks in on his tennis academies. McEnroe has always felt it was not healthy to be too consumed by tennis, which is part of the reason he wasn't crazy about his own children pursuing it to a high level. I just felt there would be extra attention on my kids because of the way I acted, he says. When McEnroe reflects on his life now, there are a lot of contradictions to wrestle with. And wrestle with them he does. The big one is how, as a player, he was everything that was wrong with tennis, even society, and now he's part of the establishment, revered on the same grounds he used to terrorize. Or there's the conundrum that a man who spent his whole career furious at the ineptitude and presumption of journalists has become the most influential member of their cohort. Or how about the fact he can broadly be content with life, but also apoplectic, 
that he's lost a fun knock-up with Michael Chang at the age of 60. McEnroe doesn't claim to have all the answers. It's been a hell of a ride, I'll say that, he says. And I feel like I've come out in a pretty good place. It's been amazing to go from this villain. I remember seeing in papers, the most hated people in history. And you've got Adolf Hitler, one. Attila the Hun, two. John McEnroe, three. Jack the Ripper, four. Now, all of a sudden, I'm the ambassador of tennis somehow. So, it's sort of funny, honestly. But it beats the alternative, I guess. That was It's Been a Hell of a Ride, John McEnroe on Learning to Lose and Being the Rock Star of Tennis by Tim Lewis, read by Christopher Ragland. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Rick Samada, Brenda Iyala, and Christopher Ragland, and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.